from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Mark Fennell. My name is Inua Mark Mohammed Onyurude Elams II. And as a child, initially I wanted to be Optimus Prime. And then I think I also wanted to be Bumblebee, but definitely Optimus Prime had the edge. And then I wanted to be a town planner. Born in Nigeria to a Muslim father and a Christian mother, Inwa Elams fled with his family at age 12 to the UK. He spent his youth in London, then Dublin, then London again, and has said that his teenage years were characterised by a perpetual crisis of identity. Inwa spent his life creating art, writing poetry, and going on long walks through the city while everyone else was sleeping. And he was searching for some sense of identity. Inwa, firstly, welcome to the show. Um, you spent the first 12 years of your life in Nigeria. Um, for people that have no concept of what it's like there, what, what were your earliest memories? We were a middle, middle class Nigerian family. You know, I went to boarding school. My father's traveled a lot. He had a degree from Vatican University. We were a middle class, typical Nigerian family. I grew up listening to like Bobby Brown and Michael Jackson. And, you know, for a family that lived in northern Nigeria, we were sort of plugged into the global world because of my father's education and his awareness of just how the world worked. Um, it was hot. It was crazy. I loved boarding school. And though I was punished and beating every day from playing, from acting up in class, Nigeria was an interesting place politically, socially, you know, the same things that happen in here that happen in the UK were happening there. Mm. You know, the gap between the rich and the poor was widening. We distrusted our politicians. Things were a little bit more visceral then because there's lots of um, violent and there's a lot of dictatorships disguised as a um, military sort of democ- slash democratic rule. And is that why you left? No, um, I left because um, my father married um, a Christian. He was a Muslim at the time, and the place we lived in northern Nigeria, that wasn't so welcome. When you left, was there a sense of urgency? Yeah, there was a sense of urgency. It's fascinating seeing, comparing that sense of urgency with the sense of urgency now that is gripping northern Nigeria, just mm. because of forces like Boko Haram just grinding poverty or the march of climate change, which is just destructing the internal displacement in northern Nigeria, it's like the situations that contributed to us leaving just feels, yeah, like diet coke compared to the absolute horror um, going on in some of those those places, yeah. When you moved to London at the age of 12, what was the biggest thing you missed about home at that point? Being beaten in boarding school. Okay, that's weird. We need yeah. to talk about that. <laughs> no. What, what Honestly, was it that you desperately enjoyed about that process? Because... Well, Older students and teachers are still able to discipline younger students with canes, with belts, etc. But it just added like actual danger and consequences to being a bad kid. And it just helped put me in check. When I arrived in London and, you know, the best things teachers could do was put me in detention. And you're like, please. Exactly. (laughs) And the thing is, I liked my teachers. So I just got to hang out with them one on one for an hour. I was like, hell yeah, put me in detention. (laughs) Like, like, let's do this. A lot of your work is concerned with masculinity, the idea of, of what makes a man. And I'm curious, at the age of 12, what, what would have been your ideal man? Probably He-Man. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Some, something like that. I didn't really think of them as men. They were just icons. I didn't mm. think of them as particularly masculine. They just seemed larger than life cartoon drawings that I could somehow distill and control by emulating them, drawing them in my own sketch pads. But I think that was mainly it. That was my father mm. who just seemed so close that I didn't really think of him 
as something to aspire to, not because he wasn't aspirational, inspirational. He was just my dad. You know, I had a twin, I have a twin sister. I have three sisters. And as a kid, I just grew up playing with my sister, which meant doing everything that they did. And there were some of the traits, um, which are associated with femininity, which I fully got to explore, i.e., um, I was very emotional. Like, you know, I used to cry when I was upset, etc. My sisters never said, don't cry. Or, you know, girls, don't cry because you're crying like a girl because they were girls. They, they didn't say, you know, so I just got to really explore the full, you know, um, I don't know, span of my of my emotional capabilities. When I arrived in London, I was just more comfortable around girls than my male friends were around girls, mm. you know. So I just kind of ran around with both crowds, which meant that I wasn't, aware of the problems of masculinity at the time because I was cool. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is fine. I can be who I am because I've always been who I am. It's only growing up in the last, in the UK, in the last few years, particularly that I've seen just the devastation that it's bringing to mental health for men, particularly. And I do want to talk about that, particularly in the construct of um, Barbershop Chronicles soon. But the, the other thing that I thought was interesting about that early those early days is that you said you'd moved from Nigeria to London and in a particularly diverse part of London too. Yeah. Were you sort of prepared for that in terms of just encountering people from such different backgrounds? Um, I definitely was not prepared of it. In fact, the moment where I realized the fallacy of race was when um, my boys and I, we, we kind of um, ran out of a classroom. We didn't ask for permission. We just bunked. We just skipped the lesson and we we're hiding out in the toilets. We began pretending to pee, not actually peeing. Just, pre- just stay with me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. For those of you playing at home, I'm making a very yes. confused face right now. <laughs> we began pretending to pee. And so my closest friend is a guy called Jack. He pretended. Then I pretended. Then this Chinese boy called Louis also pretended to be, he could barely speak English. So lots of, lots of our communication was gestural. It was, you know, miming through things. He began to pretend to pee. And when he finished, he did something which only I did where, um, he pretended to shiver. And now whenever I pee for some weird reason, this Mm. shiver thing travels all the way down my spine. I just have to shake it off. Like, I don't know. I've just always had it. So Louis pretended to pee and then pretended that shiver. And I thought, whoa, wait, wait, that's, wait, you have that shiver, like, that's crazy. Mm. And, and he just, he just looked as different for me as I thought he could, like, anyone physically could. You know, he had much paler skin. His hair was long and wispy and dark. And mine was all curly and short. Um, he was skinnier than I am. My skin was pretty dark at the time. Um, I wore glasses. He didn't wear glasses. We were dressed differently. I was just thinking, despite all of these things, you shiver like I do. Like mm. my spine is in your body, yours is in spine. And you weren't actually peeing, but you tapped into that memory. And like, that's crazy. The experience of moving to Dublin though was a little bit less warm and fuzzy. I understand you experienced a, a degree of racism there that you called um, exhausting, but character building. Yeah. Dublin was just in its infancy regarding race relations. They just didn't know they hadn't met people of African origin mm. and they were just going through the motions of that. So a lot of the racism I, I faced came from ignorance rather than malice. It just came from people who didn't really know things and they were afraid, afraid of things they didn't know. And they digested so much of British elitism and Af- uh, sorry, and American racism that somehow that was the default place that they acted from. I just, I kind of had to educate my entire school 
like it wasn't a directive. Like I said, I would do this. I just mm. tried to do everything that I would do normally, despite everything, despite the ridiculous questions they asked, just the anger, just the snarling, like, who's this? Why is this black boy? And like all of that stuff. I just, I just walked through all of those things just trying to be myself. For people that listen to this and perhaps don't have a firsthand experience of what that kind of racism looks like and feels like, could you give me something as an example, doesn't have to be the most traumatic thing, but something that can kind of contextualize it for somebody that hasn't experienced it firsthand. I remember my very first English class, they were reading Catcher in the Rye mm. and people were taking turns to read pages. I raised my hand offering to read and the whole class started laughing because they didn't think I could, um, including my English teacher. So that's something, um, you know, walking through shopping malls and having a mustard squirted at me and my jacket cycling home and having people shoulder charge me off my bike off the pavement walking through hallways at school and having kids just shout the n-word at me yeah those are, those are some of the you know they, they are they are solid and horrifying examples yeah. for sure people asking my twin sister if she got her period like normal people do you know those kind of those kind of things wow but you also made some great friends in dublin too um who had the most impact on you in dublin as a friend who passed away called Stephen. He used to call me Sheikh Elspear because of my surname Elams and because <laughs> I was born a Muslim. Sheikh Elspear. And he just thought I'd be a writer well before I ever considered it. Um, Stephen, we just had a profound connection via language. We used to dazzle and argue with each other purely for the sake of arguing, for the parry and thrust of sword fighting. It wasn't about winning. It was just to see how long we could keep this up, you know? Um, yeah, Stevens probably had the most profound effect on me. But there were other guys. Another guy called Stephen um, O'Brien. It was through him that I learned to love hip-hop because it was a huge fan. The the Stephen you mentioned at the beginning, you, you've spoken about him on stage before. What is your best memory of him? How terrible he was at basketball. Like, <laughs> he just had... <laughs> No competency whatsoever. He just lacked any phys- sense of physical awareness in relation to the ball. Oh my God, it was it was laughably pathetic. I remember him, him and I making fun of our business studies teacher. But it was a light fun because she knew us, she trusted us, she knew we were respectful. So we would just kind of tease her and she'd tease us back in front of the class. It seemed like a play in, th- in which... Three of us starred before the rest of the class and our audience. There was just a nice banter between all three of us. I remember going um, back to school after Stephen had passed and um, the table Stephen and I sat in had been removed from the classroom, the whole corner. The, the makeup of the class had been reorganized so that the gap would just not be there. When he passed away, do you remember how you heard about it? Another Stephen just called me up on the phone and told me. Yeah, that was it. I was I was working at an architectural firm at the time, and this is when I knew I did not want to be a town planner. Yeah. Town planner, and they had sent me back home to measure the grounds for a McDonald's drive-in that <laughs> drive-through that they were building. And yeah, it was weird. I don't like McDonald's anymore. What you do now. A lot of it's built around poetry. Like you are, you've, you've achieved incredible things as a poet. But at what point does poetry step into your life? I mean, I'd always written, kind of. I did my English homework with enthusiasm. 
And my English teachers told me that I was good at it. Mm. But, you know, I was a kid born in the 80s. We grew up, every, you know, everyone told us we we're good at everything. So mm. I just thought that, like, And you are <laughs> continually good at everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I never really took it for serious. Like, yeah, you're telling everyone that, whatever. When I got back to London um, from Dublin, I, I didn't have the right to work in the country. I couldn't go to university because I was classed. And as overseas students, meaning I've been paying way too much money. And it was just time on my hands to do stuff. So I just started walking through the streets of London thinking and writing poems and trying to figure out what it meant to write poems and where poetry comes from and the whole mythology of mm. this most redundant art form. So you go from from that, you 2002, 2003, so you, the tail end of high school, or you're, you're out of high school at that point. Yeah. How do you work out that it's a thing that you can do in front of an audience that people will be engaged by, a thing you can publish, a thing you can live off? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have anything else to distract me from doing this thing because I couldn't work. All I could do was write. Um, I eventually went to a poetry event and I read a poem there and the host told me he liked it. If he hadn't, I probably would never have gone back. I was so nervous. My hands were shaking. I couldn't read the words. I think sometime that month he had bought a publishing imprint. And then a few months later, asked me, oh, have you ever considered publishing anything? I was thinking, I just started writing. Of course not. I've never considered <laughs> publishing anything. Are you kidding me? I've just realized this is a thing. <laughs> yeah. Slow down, buddy. <laughs> yeah. But he kind of liked it and kind of egged me on when I came up with this concept, which eventually became my first book, The 13th Fairy Negro Tales. So that kind of came out. I was thinking, oh, cool. I have a book now. Yay. And then things just carried on from there. I never planned all of this. You know, if you had met me as a kid, I was just a scatterbrained kid constantly splashed with, you know, um, acrylic paint on his face, on his jeans, whatever, you know. And the idea of doing something which requires as much focus, as much precision as poetry um, was just the last thing I thought I could ever achieve. So, yeah, I never planned all of this. I think it, was, it wasn't until the book actually came out that I called myself a poet. Before then, I was just writing stuff that people thought, thought was good and wanted me to keep doing. I love that throughout the rise of poetry in your life, the town planning thing never quite disappeared though, because you are interested in cities and urban spaces and how they affect people. Can you tell the story of the one night you and your friend Jack missed a bus and how it changed your life forever? Um, Jack, I keep talking about him everywhere. He he thinks it's funny, thinks it's ridiculous. Um, We went to the Battersea Arts Centre. I think after that we had a drink with a friend. And we were waiting for the bus to come, which notoriously just does its own thing. Um, so we were there waiting 10, 15, 20 minutes. The bus didn't come. We thought, ah, let's just walk the bus route. We know roughly the direction is going. Mm. The bus will join us eventually. We began to walk and the bus didn't come after the first 20 minutes. So we got bored and just deviated and just carried on walking. And what we did, as if we were piloted, or there was some sort of like a heat-seeking thing that drew us back to the areas we visited when we were kids, when I first settled in London. We just ended up walking down streets or places that we visited as kids, mm. all the way past Harrods, past Knightsbridge, past Hyde Park Corner in London, the circle, all the way back to Victoria, ended up opposite the MI5 buildings. And we just loved how deserted the city was. Just two guys walking and talking and how beautiful courtyards were when they were lit by the moonlight and by the street lamps. Just how devoid it was from the terrorism of cars 
and just the complete, you know, freedom. We had as pedestrians to roam, to cross streets without thinking twice, all of that stuff. And I just thought, surely there must be people who get a kick out of doing this, right? Mm. A group of their friends. And it just kind of grew from there where the first sort of proper event was, um, again, a group of, I don't know, 20 to 30 of my friends just walking through the streets. Of, like one of them finished the gig and actually, I think we we met at her gig. It was it was reaching the end of her set. We just piled on stage and became a back end vocalist. It was terrible. <laughs> Enough key was horrible. But we finished. We left. Just met up with some other people. We just ate and danced and walked and talked. And it finished at six a.m. or something like that. And it was utterly beautiful. And I thought, yeah, there must be complete strangers who I do not know at all who get a kick out of doing this and I just started emailing people on my poetry mailing list saying hi I'm going to walk around the streets for six hours <laughs> please come join please me come. safety in numbers me. at the very least exactly right <laughs> you know come around I'll, I'll, I'll read you some poems <laughs> we can write poems together what do you want and then this is a good sell <laughs> yeah I, I thought so but I was genuinely surprised when they did and when they couldn't come they would just forward my email on to complete strangers who didn't even know me in a poetry context i just thought okay my friend bill says this thing is good i'm gonna go so, so what so what you do now these what you did that next was you you ended up doing and they're not tours right you're not taking people on a guided path you're just walking and taking in the city at night and is that am i encapsulating it correctly no no, no okay there's a lot more to, i mean if they're tours they're very shabbily planned tours <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we don't really look at the site so that's the last thing we do um so the project is now called the midnight run that i did to in Perth earlier this year and the midnight run it's it's a way of ex- experiencing the city with 30 to 35 complete strangers where we invite local artists to run interactive art projects or just workshops during the duration of the midnight run from 6 p.m. to midnight or from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. The art forms are the things, the skill set, the things shared are varied. It could be everything from puppetry to poetry to basketball to tai chi to, um, I don't know, guerrilla gardening to still life drawing to sculpture to songwriting to choral singing to anything, anything. We even had like a massage therapist give us like the basics of how to give a proper like deep bone mass. It was just beautiful. Um, Would 100% sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. Would 100%. So we walk around the city, we find beautiful outdoor spaces so for instance we worked with an acoustic guitarist and a beatboxer he wanted he was going to use the midnight runners which is what what i call the people who come he was going to use them as an extension of his vocals or as a choir Mm -hmm. so in order to do so he needed a place with good acoustics so we just found like a square with the walls that were enclosed, which meant that our sounds of, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we tried yeah. to find places outdoors that cater to the specific kind of art form. It's a way of creating a community for one night only, of sharing a city together and then creating just really unforgettable experiences. And the city becomes a backdrop for our identities. And the Midnight Run is a way of mixing those identities in a sort of structured, very loose kind of way. I always say there are no entertainers on the midnight run, you entertain each other simply by being yourselves. And what the workshops do is they create more interesting, authentic ways for you to bring yourselves out of your shell. Like the last thing we ask is what do you do for a living? We ask questions like, why do you like the color purple? Uh, you know, in attempts to answer those questions, people tend to tell stories about themselves, you know, oh, I like purple because I had a dog called purple. Ooh, how was the dog? Oh, the dog died. Really? Where's the dog buried? Blah, blah, blah. Everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and it all starts of... tumbling out. Exactly. What's the biggest surprise that you've encountered in the years that you've done Midnight Run? And you've done it in a, in a bunch of different places. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise that you've encountered? 
Cities are incredibly transient places and people are facing the same thing. They still go through questions of loneliness and of peace and of community, and they still striving to build that. You know, when I did that, the midnight run in Paris, same thing. In Barcelona, same thing. In, in Berlin, same thing. People are still engaging with the idea of what it means to live in a community or in a sit in a geographic location that is very fast paced, that demands that of you, that is often hostile to play, hostile to young people, to old people, it's, you know, et cetera. These places just seem primed for the killer instinct, business, money-minded. Whereas we're not born that way. You know, we're beginning to realize the failings of capitalism. And yeah, so all the, I realized that we're all facing these things. People are wondering, how do we create a community in a society that thrives on one-upmanship, on competitive nature where, you know, how, how, how do we do that? It's interesting you were saying about play. One of the things you lose as an adult is the ability to be playful. And I'm wondering, is part of the goal to return that sense of play back to grown adult? That's primarily what I tried to do. It's a safe space to play to explore who you are in a group setting and to do so without risk. And there's no risk because at the end of the midnight run, you can just go back to your world. You never have to see those people again. So you can be as vulnerable, as open, safe in knowledge that whoever you're talking to, you could arrive at the midnight run and create a whole different persona. No one is there to, cre- you know, to say, this is not true. Tell me who you really are. It's just a complete democratic space to play, to experiment, to see who you are if you chose to approach the world in a different way. And people like experimenting with five different art forms, things that they've never done before. Oh my God, I do like drawing. No one has told me that I could draw before. This is, this is incredible. You know, you know, I was yeah. just thinking that next time you do the midnight run, you really should go in and tell people that you are Optimus Prime and just see what happens. <laughs> just see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> hey, can I try for a massive long bow? And you can tell me if we're, we're completely overreaching. Okay. Your family back in Nigeria, you come from a, correct me if I'm wrong on this, a tribe that are known for being nomadic. Have you ever drawn the connection that uh, your ancestry comes from a nomadic tribe, that you have this love of, of Oh, Wandering completely. City? No, it's definitely, it's definitely there. I like traveling. I like journeys by foot. I like watching the scenery change. And this year has been very difficult for me. It's also been very incredible for me. I wrote this play, which has been eight years in the making, I realized and um, only did it set out its run at the National Theatre, which is the, one of the biggest theatric spaces in the UK. It's coming back in November. And I've been touring this show called An Evening with an Immigrant, which requires me to unpick these years, some of the things we're talking about. And it's been emotionally draining. I won't say it was a mental breakdown, but I just went through a very difficult period over the last couple of weeks. And, and it's because I was just doing lots of PR well, I don't know, there are various things. Yeah, but one yeah. of the things I've rounded on is I was doing lots of PR and lots of back-to-back meetings and there just wasn't space for me to breathe again. And I realized that I wasn't creating space to get lost again, to mm. walk through cities, to just be alone in my thoughts, surrounded by these high skyscrapers and thinking what would it be like to lead a tribe of people through urban spaces like that. So um, I realized that I had... I'd broken this traditional link between me now and my ancestors. Mm. And yesterday I walked around Sydney for five hours, just listening to hip hop. And I felt happy again. And I haven't felt that intense, simple, naked, playful joy for most of this year. I go back to my hotel room feeling like my old self again, which is good. So yeah, I just realized I need, even when I'm not planning midnight runs, I just need to create space just to walk. 
What is that tension like when you don't have it? When you, when you are in the throes of meeting after meeting after meeting, talking to a reporter, sitting in front of a microphone, standing on a stage, what does that tension feel like? It kind of feels sometimes like being in the glass in a, in a, in a mirrored hut where you're creating versions of yourself or you're seeing versions of yourself or, you're, or the lens is just always turned to you and it's refractional somehow. It's just coming back at you and you begin to lose. You feel like you're performing versions of yourself in front of various people and they're asking the same questions and then they just reduce it to, to three, or th- three or four words and you think that's not what I said. That's that, that you just ripped out of the context and then you lose control over that and then you lose control over what you sound like over your spirit. And that is just intensely frustrating. And, and it's not a good place to be, especially when you work with words and you work with the precision of words and seeing people miss that, seeing it sort of devalued somehow, seeing it become paraphernalia is, is difficult. Um, there's this really great playwright in London called Debbie Tucker Green who flatly doesn't do any PR whatsoever no interviews nothing like that and i fantasize of being of being her one day just like fuck it you mentioned a, a play and i i'm inferring that we're talking about the barbershop chronicles for people that haven't seen it before can you kind of contextualize what what happens on a stage and then we'll talk about how it was conceived we sort of visit various barbershops on the African continent in six different African countries. And they're all barbershops to see over the course of a single day. And we see barbers and clients watching the same football match. And we see them talking about each other, their friends, their lives, etc. And um, we see the people that they talk about pop up in subsequent scenes. So essentially, it's sort of like a, gro- a global network of barbers and clients who know each other, but don't know that they know each other. Mm. And that's loosely how the play is structured. And so the origin is that one day you came across a story that they were planning on giving counselling training to people that ran barbershops yeah. so that they could identify what exactly? Identify mental health issues or just know how to talk to their clients when things that were a little bit problematic or potentially disastrous for the clients just mm-hmm. came out of conversation to spot the signs of everything from, you know, schizophrenia to depression, you know, and just to be able to say, I think you should try and seek professional help or just to empathize sometimes, just, just anything like that, just so they would know this is something here. My client is going through a difficult period of his life and he has, and this is an actual thing. Mm. It isn't just in his head and we, I need to help him. And so you heard that that was something that they were planning on doing, but did they ever actually do it? No, I think they'd like piloted the scheme once, but never got full funding to do it, unfortunately. And so you heard that and went, well, I'm going to do something with it. I read that. I think, okay, I, I need to be there. I need to listen to these conversations. I need to try and write poems about it. I need to create graphic art about the barbers or the clients. Like this is fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Sign me up. So so you just plonked yourself in a barbershop and you started researching. Well, (laughs) well, the thing is I wanted the project to have longevity. Um, and I wanted an organization behind me and I couldn't really get that, but the idea stayed with me for years and years until I finally convinced fuel who produced my theater work to get a pot of money. So I could just do that. I could just take time out of my work and just hang around in barbershops and they gave me an office where I could transcribe the conversations that I found 
And that's literally how the project came together, just from, yeah, just hanging out in barbershops. So you went to not just uh, barbershops in the UK, you did go to barbershops right throughout Africa as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to ask you about some of the men that you met, because in Uganda you met a man that didn't believe in love. Mm -hmm. Why didn't he believe in love? He just thought it was inconsistent. It was like, you know, that element that you put in water and it explodes. One of the isiums. Or yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, science. We definitely did really well at science. <laughs> yes. He just thought that love was just very inconsistent. It was, it was unstable. And he, he believed in a sort of godly love. There's a reason God wants you to love something. You love it for that reason. And, and it's kind of love he thought he could actualize with, for homeless people, for stray dogs, you know, for, for orphans, etc. You know, that's what, that's what he believed in love. But humane love, like romantic love, he just thought was ephemeral. Like it, it just dissolves and he didn't believe in that. You hear a story like that and like maybe it's just like bad pop psychology, but your <laughs> mind goes to something bad happened to you. Mm. Somebody broke your heart to the point that you have given up on love. Is that what goes through your head when you hear a story like that or am I just a bad person um, for making that assessment? I mean, yes, I met other guys who spoke of such things and I consider that of him, but I just realized that, um, I grew up in Nigeria where there are arranged marriages that happen to this day. Yet some of them are the most long lasting relationships I've ever come across. And they learned to love, but love is the wrong word. They learned to deeply appreciate and care for each other in a way that love doesn't quite suggest. Love is especially when I think of it within a, Western context. I do think of pop songs. I think of romance, you know, strawberries, flowers, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But in lots of developing countries, you have to survive together. You know, lots of developing countries, you're not just getting married to a person, you're marrying the entire family, their history, their ancestors. So there's lots of compatibility and thinking between both sets of parents. Is this actually good? Do we make sense? Can our families marry each other? And then you're marrying into the institution, into the idea of community. Mm-hmm. So you have all of those sets of, of groundings on which your relationship is built on. And then it comes down to an individual and you begin to think about this person. What do they represent? How does what they represent, represent, you know, marry what I represent? And what does it mean then to spend a life with each other? And slowly you build a love then that is steadfast, that, that, that just seems non-ephemeral. It doesn't seem tied to a Taylor Swift song that doesn't capture the wealth of ancestry going into that thinking. So when it was saying this to me, it doesn't believe in romantic love. It doesn't believe in love like that. I understood that mm. because that word love doesn't mean what I've described, you know. I, I would pay good money to hear Taylor Swift write a song about that guy's experience, though, because you know it would be a hit, right? <laughs> but I feel like in English language, we need another other types of words for love because love, people say I love you and people say I love ice cream or I love Taylor Swift, you know? And- yeah. A lot of Barbershop Chronicles, as I can tell, is concerned with men and the interactions of men and how men behave in, in that environment. And there was an, a guy that you met and there's a quote that sort of really stood out to me as I was reading about it. He said, to be a man is to not be yourself. What did you understand that to mean in that moment? What I think he meant was that he'd been performing himself over and over again and performing masculinity. He'd see things which would, which would almost drive him to tears which would emotionally move him, but they think, okay, crap, I can't cry in front of these people. Like, that's bad. So he was restraining who he would, who, who would have been otherwise. Or um, he'd be interested in art, 
in flower arrangement, you know, little things like that. And think I can speak to my boys about that. Like, okay, I can't be myself. I can't, be, my interest here just be, just be laughed at. So he kind of existed in spaces where things like that would be hostile. So he felt like he could not be himself. And you, as a person that was raised with sisters and extremely high advanced skills at redesigning dolls and dollhouses, <laughs> what was going through your head as you heard that? Because that must have been either confusing or well, really sad on some level. Yeah, so, it knocked me sideways because I just realized my privilege in having three sisters, in, in being surrounded by women who just accepted me and, and, and the fact that I'd operated that way my whole life oblivious to the fact that other guys you know didn't grow in societies like that or or with so close relationships with women in a non-sexual or Mm. you know kind of way so yeah it really humbled me and then i began to to check my own privilege And, and i also realized something i started writing poetry when i was 19 i started working on the play properly in you know 2013 so i'd spent almost 10 11 years traveling around the world reading poems that were intensely emotional, that were intensely navigating really intricate spaces in front of audiences who applauded me to do that. They want, they were paying me to read them poems about emotional fragility and stuff like that. Lots of guys don't do that. You know, they don't leave the spaces where people pay them to be emotionally risible, you know, and it just really, oh, wow. So I've been doing this my whole life. And when I realized that, again, I just began to check my own privilege. This is why I'm able to have really difficult conversations and blah, blah, blah. And, and lots of guys can't. If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about the way men interact, what would you change? I think first and foremostly, I'd take capitalism out of the equation. The idea of having to be the breadwinner, of having to provide for everyone, that is an incredible amount of pressure to put on any individual's shoulder. Mm. And to have that on your shoulders simply because you have a penis is ridiculous. Mm. And conversely has an impact on, on women's roles in society yeah, too, which yeah, is also yeah. very toxic yeah, exactly. in many ways. Exactly. So I think one of the first things I do is remove that. I, I just change the balance or try and create just an equal pay, you know, um, an e- yeah, just just across the world. I think that is the, one of the things I do. And and if men don't see themselves having to play the traditional head of the family role, breadwinner, decision maker, that softens their spine a little and it changes conversations. It changes how they would interact with women. If we think of them as rather than someone I have to provide for, someone who might have to provide for me, you know, that's yeah. that, that just changes everything. So I think that's, that's the one thing, if I could wave a wand and do that, that's the first thing I do. How long did it take for mum and dad to get on board with the fact that you were doing poetry and art for a living? It wasn't until that first book came out in 2005 that my father accepted that I might not, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer. Or, or town planner. Or town planner, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he came to the book lunch and saw people older than he was queuing for my autograph. And they thought, okay then, just keep writing and see what happens. And, you know, because we were in the same, similar situation, I couldn't work. Blah, blah, blah. But he was, I guess, was happy that I was doing something which was productive, which was creative and which people were beginning to respect me. You know, he, he saw, he saw there was a respectability in this profession and an immediate one spent, you know, however long been studying medicine before anything like that came. So I think it was, it wasn't until that 
um, that he began to give me space to do so. How were you guys talking about your your career, your art, before that moment, though? We didn't really talk about it. <laughs> Just pretend it doesn't happen. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he, I mean, he knew I was out, you know, coming home late at night because I was reading poetry and doing things like that. But with the, I mean, feels like a euphemism, right? He's been staying out all night play, reading poetry. <laughs> <It's> poetry. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's doing that. That's a lie. Clearly. We didn't really, t- he knew what was happening, but there wasn't much to talk about. He knew the difficulties. I couldn't do anything else, but I'm doing that. So that's fine. It's just, yeah. But it wasn't until the book came out that he began to give me more space to do it. And then it wasn't until every time this happens now, he calls me up and tells me one day he was in some random post office somewhere. Then he had to sign something. Then he, said, then he signed it in Roy Ellum's. And the cashier looked at him and said, no, you're not in Roy Ellum's. He's younger than you. <laughs> Like this is this is rubbish. No. Yeah, and, and he said, um, "Yeah, he's my son." And he said, "He's your son." And she called her colleague. Oh my God! Come, this man is in Wilhelm's father. Then every time that happens, he just gets very proud and calls me up and tells me that. So, <laughs> so I think when that began to happen, I thought, "Okay, cool." Your own immigration in terms of moving from Nigeria to London was, to say the least, beset with problems. To the extent that you're happy to share, what the hell happened? A litany of clerical errors. (laughs) (laughs) Because the UK is not known for bureaucratic problems at all. (laughs) Exactly, no. (laughs) Just everything from really dodgy lawyers to really dodgy postal systems to things just wrong forms being filmed being filled and filed to bad advice from various people to racism within the british immigration system to what happens when you're a judge and time after time you see people going through ridiculously horrific situations and you become desensitized to their suffering and they just become files and it's easy enough to, to take yes and take no for that one. And just, you know, it just becomes run of the mill. I think all of those things contributed to how ridiculous my immigration story um, was, is. And so at this stage, you're still not a British citizen. No, you, I'm a Nigerian citizen. I hold a Nigerian passport. And you still have to, like, you have to reapply and things like that. Yeah, to, to, I do. <laughs> even yeah. though you've lived there since you were 12. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because... There's an incredible moment with this show where at a certain point you end up being invited to Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And, and it's happened twice, I understand? Yeah, I've been there twice. So you've been to Buckingham Palace, you've met the Queen, and you're still not technically... <laughs> yeah, I'm not a British... Here, here's the thing. I do a lot of work with the British Council where I'm traveling around the world representing British art. There was one year when my face was on the front cover of the British Council's international brochure and, and I couldn't even leave England. <laughs> So it's it's completely ridiculous, but I don't know. It's I just laugh at it. What else can you do, right? Yeah, nothing within my power. But I would like to imagine that the you know the British Empire, what's left of it, would be able to fix this clerical error. But at the very least, did you at least think to go to the Queen, going, "Lovely to meet you. Can we talk about my citizenship?" Um, maybe I should have. No, I remember the second time I was there. Um, you know Helen Mirren, the yeah. British actress, was there. She could have sorted you out. <laughs> like you know, you know, she knows how to get stuff done. I, this is the thing. She she be so. There were, there were like performances there. They didn't accept a Romeo and Juliet, whatever. Oh, and Daniel Kaluuya, who was in Get Out, yeah, yeah he's so incredible. Actor. Yeah, he's incredible. Actor. So he was Romeo in this little 
performance stage of the palace. And um, I remember when he finished um, and the performance finished, every, you know, the hall rise, everyone stood up for the queen to leave the space. When she left, um, we just kind of stood there not knowing what to do. They hadn't given clear instructions or whatever. So the actresses and the young actors were just, were just looking at, you know, wondering what to do. So then Helen Mirren stepped up and just congratulated them on the performance. <laughs> so... Because as soon as when the queen left, she became the default queen. <laughs> well, she, I mean, you know. <laughs> she, she was, it was so awesome. Uh, All right. So let's come back to your performance, your incredible award-winning performance, right? So it is, you are packing in your life story and your experience of, of immigration into 90 minutes. And I'm wondering, where did the idea for that start? When you were like, that's it, I'm going to make a show out of this. No, it started in 2015 where I was a resident writer at the Soho Theatre. And um, I'd written a play which they didn't like, which in hindsight, they were right not to like. And so they just gave me a night to try out something. So I thought, I don't have space to write another poem. So I'm to write another play. So I'm just going to read some poems mm. and call it something. And I didn't want to call it an evening at the Ellen's because I thought no one's going to come to that. Like, who the hell am I? Like, that's a bad idea. Um, so I called in an evening with an immigrant because, I, you know, I just thought that that's fine. That sounds interesting enough. And this was in 2015. This was well before everything happened from Brexit to Trump to the European Union. You know, it, all of that stuff hadn't yeah. happened. So I, I Very wrote, uneventful year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this thing and I was reading it and it was a complete shambles. I, I planned for an hour for the show. We ran over, we ran over by like 20 minutes. Um, most of the friends I was referencing in the poems were in the audience. I was making fun of them as I was. It just felt like this really gorgeous, chaotic. I kept on shuffling the order of poems and it just went really well. And this really great theater critic wrote a stunning review of the of that shambles of a show and i thought ah, okay i may have something here then the following year i planned to do it roughly around july and then brexit happened like two weeks before something stupid like that so every time i would come into the rehearsal space i would have to just re rejig the orders of poems and rejig the script because so much anti-immigration rhetoric was just spilling from the mouths of british citizens and politicians it was incredible so ever since then as everyone, as most of Britain, I've seen how colossally bad a decision Brexit was. Mm. Um, and I'm really wondering what it means to be a British citizen and how we treat people who are not born on these, on these islands. How does that affect our Britishness? Ever since then, I think the consciousness of the legacy of empire and the, the roast in the glasses with which British citizens have been afforded space to cast in those years is beginning to fray at the edges now. And because of that, this, the space in which the show sits is just becoming intensely politicized and political. And just lots of people are trying to book this show, which I wrote because I didn't want to call it after myself. <laughs> you know, There was a, a running joke that I saw you put in an interview, and you might have just been joking with the interview, I don't know, but you were saying you could have easily also called it a night with a with a bad basketball player as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A reluctant, a terrible vegetarian, yeah. You had a... You've, Toured the show all around the world, but I did want to ask you about an experience you had where um, you performed the show in Italy. Yeah, and a woman brought a, a group of young African men along, and the interaction really shook you. I found. Yeah, uh, what happened? I guess in my head, I, I had been performing the show as a face of immigration because I was also an immigrant, and to try and um, just bring these things that I'd been sort of battling with out to the fore and work through it with an audience. And I was, in my head, I was doing so for other immigrants who weren't, you know, 
are who are in similar spaces or positions of power, or which you know the small places that I do you know operate in. And I thought I was just doing the show for them, but and it, and it, and it really isn't really because I could just read those poems to myself and be happy that they exist. So there I was in Italy doing this show, and after this lady came up to me and told me that um she loved it and she had brought a bunch of um young immigrants, mostly from from the African continent, various countries, to come and see the show. And as the show was unfolding, she kept on looking at their faces and noticed a couple of things where when they heard that um, um, that I went to boarding school, they were like, oh, okay. When they heard um, that I my father had enough money to send us to boarding school, like, oh, okay. When I heard I did one of these things, gone to Buckingham Palace, blah, 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 they realized slowly that there were things that they would never, ever be able to achieve. Um, they didn't speak English, as, you know, as, as well as I did. They hadn't been educated formally as well as I do. They had been afforded these privileges, which which I had. And she said to me then, if I'm not an inspiration to these people because I'm just so far out of their realm of possibility, then what good is the show doing for them? She didn't address it in that way. She was quite, she was much softer and no, more. But that's your interpretation of it. That's my interpretation of what she meant. And then it, it just knocked me sideways because I realized that I was failing at that. And then this, immediately after that, I realized that in that in that case, because I do operate in the theatric spaces, in theater, in places mm-hmm. like this, then I'm catering mostly to middle-class, to upper-middle-class people yeah. who probably hardly ever come in contact with immigrants if they are not immigrants themselves from, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I realized I created a show where I was hoping to speak on behalf of immigrants, but I wasn't doing that. And the people I was speaking to were people who, you know, yeah, who would not be directly touched by the issue. And I was almost created a space potentially for voyeurism where they could come and get, you know, spend a cool night with an immigrant and go back to their cushy lives. And it just knocked me for sideways. And I began thinking, okay, I failed here. Every which way, this is this is terrible. But something happened, which made me check myself. I realized I was very wrong regarding my audience. I have no idea who's in the room, their backgrounds. And in touring the show, I realized that lots of um, people are immigrants. Or they have immigration in the backgrounds. And, you know, because they're second generation or they did well, that doesn't alienate them from those backgrounds. Pretty much half of Australians were either born overseas or the parents were born overseas. (laughs) Exactly. So I realized that was deeply problematic. Yeah. So I changed that in in, in just how I've used the show. But also I remember um, seeing this really great poet called Saeed, an American poet, and he was talking about Donald Trump. And he said that the people he blamed mostly for his winning, you know, the presidency and the problems associated with that are his sort of cool cosmopolitan friends who are white American, who were there, who journey back to, you know, to their hometowns, et cetera. And when they sat around that, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, they are, they are members of their family are, are just harboring racist or anti-immigrant views. They just kind of keep quiet and think this is deeply embarrassing. This does represent, represent me and they leave those dinner spaces and come back to London. Those are the times where you're supposed to speak up and say, no, this is wrong. You don't know. You haven't met these people. I have met, I live with them. These, these are the reasons why what you're saying is problematic and not true. And I realized that when I do go to theaters and elements of those societies who make, who make up the larger percentage of the theater going audience are there, they cannot go back and say, actually, that's wrong. And not because I read it in a newspaper, not because I saw it on Twitter. I actually spent 90 minutes with the guy. Like, like these are the facts here. So that, 
It just reinvigorated uh, my willingness to perform the show. From Nigeria to London to Dublin, back to London, all around the world and out here, where in the world do you feel most at home? In my flat in Brixton, which is quite racially diverse. The data is changing rapidly because of gentrification, and blah, blah, blah. Probably there in my flat. Do you feel like a perennial expat? I guess so. Yeah. Have you ever considered not moving for a period of time? As in not traveling? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying not to travel and just stay in London and try and be a good boyfriend to my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> just stay, stay rooted for a little bit. Yeah. Sir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, it's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway, music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye.